This episode of The Clappers contains information and knowledge. We're talking Captain Marvel. Talking the girls in the band. We're talking Lars von Trier. Talking Hospo voice. Enjoy. Welcome to The Clappers. This is Andrew Young. And this is Carl Quinn. Here we are once again, Carl. Indeed. How did this happen? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Andrew, mm. I want to see Captain Marvel. Now, I know you're not a fan of Marvel films, and I know you don't see any reason to talk about these things, but it was released the day before International Women's Day. Now, you might go, well, that's just, you know, coincidence, or you might go, that's canny marketing, because it is Marvel's first female-led superhero movie. Okay. There are other female superheroes, but this is the first one in their canon that has a female lead. It comes after Warner's DC imprint got Stole a lead here with Wonder Woman a couple of Sorry, years ago. Just, oh, you've glazed over. You've glazed over. Oh, Look, just man. just take the lie down. I'll wake we, you when I'm finished. Can you just get to the interesting <laughs> part of this conversation? <laughs> okay. The film's good. Good. Great. Okay, it's so like, it's got it's the first film, just just because I was so bored by everything you said. Yeah, sorry. It's the first female superhero lead of a... F- it's the fi- first female-led yes. superhero film in the Marvel okay. Cinematic Universe, okay, right, MCU. Okay. Is so the, how, what is this, how many films have they done now? I think this is 21, maybe, so that's, that's something a, like that. That's a lot of films before we get to the yeah, point yeah, where the... Yeah. I mean, it, I, okay. I could actually look right. up the number. But no, 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 no. If, if you give me questions on notice, sir, and I'll No, no, I just meant a rough number, like... Is it 20? Is it 50? We're north of 20. We're definitely north of 20. This is a new phrase you're deploying, I've noticed. North of? Yeah. Is it? Yeah, it's good because it's taking the place of a phrase that you overused a lot that I didn't mention, but I was hoping you'd you'd stop using. So keep on with the north, my friend. It's good. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) So you enjoy the film? I did. I I was really pleasantly surprised. I thought it was going to – because the Marvel movies can be a bit – dour at times they can be a bit plodding i mean all the superhero movies i think can be they have that tendency in them yeah which is not to say that i think they're all all bad by any means i mean i i can enjoy a superhero movie i don't often find them more than sort of mildly diverting in the end Uh i thought the last avengers movie was great i thought the last 15 20 minutes of that was just really quite mind-blowingly good right? okay. because it was a kind of apocalyptic uh, half of the people, half of these characters are just being wiped out kind of scenario. Uh, there is a sequel to that I coming. you're going to say, there are so many more characters. Yeah, well, there, are. Well, there, are, there are thousands. There are literally <laughs> thousands of superhero this characters. This could there. be called, instead of the Clappers, mm-hmm. the Marvel Podcast. No, it could not. It could. It, we no. speak a lot there about are, it. Oh, we, we do. Well, we do because and it's, I'm, a, it's and I'm such a saying, big part of the, of the culture. Uh, uh, popular culture. I'm, I'm just going to – well, I wasn't necessarily saying that was a bad thing. If, if they're pumping them out, and you're seeing them, and people are seeing them, then talk about them. You know, I'm not saying don't talk about Thanks, Marvel Andrew. superhero films. Thank you. Thank I am you. saying, though, that you talk about it a lot, and it's a good thing that you like them. No, it's – okay, paint me paint me with your – I'm going to surprise you. <laughs> I'm going to surprise you right now and tell you that I saw a Marvel superhero film. <laughs> okay, just Blow me down. Take a breath. I saw a Marvel superhero film. Right. And it wasn't very good. Was it how the duck? It wasn't terrible. It it was okay. Uh, it, it, it there was no surprises. You knew everything that was going to happen. Well, tell me which you one knew it was. Who was good? Who was bad? It was called Black Panther. Right, that one. Okay, 
To me, that's yes. a film that is replaying the Martin Luther King Malcolm X dialectic, mm-hmm. and it's doing it in a way that that speaks to a generation that probably is even not that aware mm-hmm. of that dialectic, and it is wrestling with the idea of black identity and black empowerment, and it's doing so in this, you know, what you would probably, what you, I think, would mm. fairly dis- dismiss as a fairly inane format, right? And mm. I kind of think what's interesting about a film such as Black Panther, and I would extend that to say, and Captain Marvel, is that it is bringing to this pretty much cookie-cutter kind of format mm. ideas that are bigger than that format and are, are quite um, quite progressive in some respects. So you're not from around here. It's hard to explain. In okay. the case of Captain Marvel, yeah, tell me it's about Captain very Marvel, much about female empowerment. Okay, it's about right. a woman who... What's her day job when she's not Captain Marvel? Well, she starts off as a... Well, as with many of these films, it's complicated. Okay. It's, we she's have, unemployed. No. God, Good. No, no, no. Good. No, she's a test pilot. Fantastic. Except that that's a different character. Okay. She's, uh, she's a trainee warrior on, uh, on a planet in, in the Cree civilization. Right? Okay. That's Cree, not as an, not as an American Indian, no, but no. as, as a, uh, an interstellar species. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And she, She's being coached by uh, Jude Law's uh, warrior type, and he's mansplained. Con- a bit of mansplaining going yep. on. There's definitely mansplained. some mansplaining going on. Fantastic, and he's he continually <laughs> tells her that she has to suppress her emotional side and yeah. let the rational yeah, be right. the only thing okay. that dominates. So I, I see what they're doing there. You do, don't <laughs> I you? I see what you they're do. doing there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and it and it turns out that she, in fact has uh, like a parallel life or uh, a, a another life. I don't want to say too much about okay. the plot no, because no, often no, no, often with no. these things there are secrets and twists that are that are revealed and for the people who give a damn yep. you know part of the fun is actually following well, the simple how people that, who haven't worked it out before the titles have finished at no, the start you don't need to be so derogatory don't I you don't need to be so superior nobody, you know nobody else is right you know mm. everybody is getting massaged like crazy and <laughs> patted on the back like you wouldn't believe so, you know. Anyway, played by Brie Larson, who came to prominence in the movie Room a few years ago where she was the mother of a young child. She'd been, she'd been uh, kidnapped and she was held captive mm. in, in this subterranean. Yeah, I heard about uh, this, yeah. Well, it wasn't subterranean, in, in fact. But it, yeah, but in a uh, what seemed to be a, well, a hermetically sealed room. She couldn't. Mm. She was kept captive for many years. She had a child to her captor, yep. and so an amazing film. Vienna. It was really, yeah, it's mm. a very, very powerful film, and she was fantastic in it. And this is like she's, you know, she's taking the leap into mainstream blockbustery kind yeah, of stuff. Right. Um, and it's it's an it's not a role without kind of payoff for a serious performer, I think, because she does get to play with being a an ordinary sort of quite test vulnerable pilot. test pilot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just your normal just your average human being. ordinary test pilot. But yep. then when she when she develops her superhuman persona, it yeah. is it is uh she's kinda like uh, it's 
I don't think there's a, there's a character who's more powerful in some respects. It's mm-hmm. like she's got Superman elements. She's got Iron Man elements. She's just kind of like, she can do everything. Yeah. She, she's quite, and it's like, I am woman, hear me roar. She's, yeah. you know, hear me roar in space where you can't you actually can't hear, hear anything. No. anybody they roar at all. That, yeah. But she's, uh, it's pretty great. Okay, and, well, cool. and And it's like four hours long? It's only two hours and four minutes, so it's a That's relatively brief in those films, yes, isn't it? Yes, yeah. But there is a lovely little uh, subversive element where the villains of the piece turn out not to be the villains of the piece. They oh. turn out to be a persecuted minority. And, How about that? And I almost, I almost the, the words almost passed my lips. The, I, the, what, you could, you could frame it, I, I you could frame it, it as, uh, as there are kind, it's kind of a metaphorical treatment of the uh, Palestinian situation, or you could frame it uh, as being about refugees generally. Mm-hmm. But there's a really, really powerful little, you know, element in in there that I I found really exciting to be watching okay. a film that had. It ticked all of those boxes. It, it did the things that those blockbusters have to do, but mm-hmm. it actually brought a bunch of other stuff to the table, and I found that pretty cool. I keep having these memories. I see flashes. I think I had a life here. But I can't tell if it's real. This was released the day before International Women's Day, which was originally called International Working Women's Day. Was it? Yeah, it was. Mm. So on International Women's Day, apart from all my domestical duties, I watched film on Canopy, which we spoke about, which is the streaming service, which if you have a library card, you type in your library card, and depending on your library, you get seven, ten, five, however many views of a show per month. And I watched a film called The Girls in the Band, right? And that film is about female jazz musicians and female jazz orchestras and groups of which there was an abundance from the 30s, especially in the Second World War, but died off sharply after the Second World War. It's very difficult to be a female jazz musician given that it's such a male-dominated profession. And so often the case was of you would have a female jazz musician who would often uh, have to tend to the domestic side of family life on marrying a male jazz musician and be never heard from again. Uh, This documentary looks at a couple, two or three of uh, the, the... Great. I mean, and these I, I played some of them on my radio show on Saturday. Some of these groups are just wonderful, and I had I'd heard of a lot of the the solo uh, female musicians like um, Melba Liston, uh, trombone player Marion McPartland, an uh, 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 English piano player who married a, a Dixieland jazz musician called Jimmy McPartland, or New Orleans, Chicago, you know, traditional style, and she went quite into the modern direction and uh hazel scott well reasonably well known but there were also lesser known female black jazz musicians and a couple of the bands like ina ina ray hutton and her Milladeers. now ina ray wasn't such a great singer or, or even a musician but had a great collection of women musicians playing jump and, and the dance band stuff and it just charts what it was like for those musicians touring. It's good. It, it talks with some still living uh, female musicians. It talks about a, a festival that started in Kansas City 
called the Kansas City uh, Jazz, Women's Jazz Festival, which started in 1977 and brought together a whole lot of female jazz musicians. So it's about it's about empowerment. It's about it's a lot about uh, is camaraderie and how one one musician uh, Terry Lynn Carrington, I think it is, says that she met Quincy Jones when she, she's a, a drummer. Met mm. Quincy Jones when she was a very young girl, and he asked her, "What do you want to do?" And she says, yeah, "I want to I want to play. I want to be missing. You're going to have to be you're going to have to be excellent." going to have to be not just very good and that's always been the case is that yeah, female yeah. musicians have to be so much better than the men just to you know assert their presence on the bandstand it, it's not very long just about an hour hour and 15 minutes but there's some great material great footage amazing footage and how far back does it go it goes back to the 20s to the 20s okay. oh, okay. there was a band right. called the what were they called oh they were formed they were formed in New York by a couple of promoters and uh, and agents as as, as kind an exploitation kind, kind of, of act. yeah exactly right. as right. kind of a novelty yeah, yeah. act. Uh, great great musicians. Damn, the name has just gone out of my head. But there's this nine minute clip of them sitting in formation on the bandstand. Did I did I write them down? I did. Like a big band. Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. These yeah. are all these are all big bands, all big bands. right? Okay. And they're 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 playing. They're, they're, you've got some violins, which wasn't uncommon in the twenties. Got like. Drums, bassoon, piano, two pianists, and they play one piece, um, and then they do another piece where all of them start playing accordions, right? right? And still the pianist and the drummer, the drumming, and the, and the next piece, they all pick up the banjo. They're these incredible multi instrumentalists. Right. They do a version of, of ti- the ingenues, the ingenues. I think they do a version of Tiger Rag, from the original um, Dixieland jazz band. I think first recorded that and. Uh, it's it's you can hear a lot of the Carl Stalling style Warner Brothers cartoon yeah. music, very dynamic. But my God, just watching anybody pick up two or three quite you know, different instruments and play them with any kind of panache, but a whole band full of women, mm. you know, uh, it's it's just marvelous and such a joy to watch and so beautiful the, that Kansas City, which is really one of the homes with the great territory bands it changed jazz music from being this kind of honky-tonk New Orleans style of thing um, brought together a whole a whole lot of different artists uh, some of whom had retired and just couldn't face that constant grind of having to push against men and brought them out of retirement and to, to send and restarted their careers you know it's a really lovely film about support and friendship and camaraderie and 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 skill and proficiency, you know, um, talks a lot in that film about Dizzy Gillespie. He was tremendously supportive of, as a rule, everybody who talks about Dizzy Gillespie says how, how keen he was to share and teach his, his strange chord progressions and, and help people get into this new music that was happening mm. at the start of the 40s that he kind of invented. Um, but a lot of the female jazz musicians talk very warmly, Mary Lee Williams and Melba Listen, about how, how kind and, and helpful when so many Was he men, an outlier? Was he was he pretty much oh, it? He, he no 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 no. But he was definitely very unusual in the like jazz musicians were not would not like to share. You know, this is my secret fingering. This is my secret chord. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, and I'm not, this is what gives me the edge. Whereas Dizzy Gillespie shared everything. Yeah. Everything. He'd sit down and show you things on the piano, and you know, it's it's a 
it's not like Dizzy Gillespie saved women in jazz. There's nothing like that. But it just, it's just nice to know that, that while it was difficult and while a lot of the time, you know, it was about wear this stupid costume, you know, put on some lipstick. It was, it was like a decorative aspect, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there was some great music being played and uh, it was, it's, it's really worth watching. If, if you have a library card, get onto the canopy, uh, check out The Girls in the Band and the website, thegirlsintheband.com. I'll put, a, I'll put some links up on the, on the radio programs page. I'll put some links up on the Facebook group, find out more about these amazing musicians. Well, why don't you and the girls warm up with a jam session? Okay, so it's me. Let's take it, girls. I knew I was going to play my trumpet some way. Some of the most powerful players that I have ever heard were women jazz players. It was unusual for any musician of that age. The fact that she was a female was even more unusual. Andrew, have you heard of Lars von Trier? No. Never? No. Oh, come on now. <laughs> okay, I've heard of Lars von Trier. All right, next. What do you know about him? He makes impossible to watch films, and I just have no interest in his films. I tried to watch one. I watched one. I was in the cinema. It was awful. And I Which one was that? Um, it was... Europa, which is probably one of the straightest films. Yeah, he's yeah, ever yeah. Made, it was I terrible. Yeah. It was. I'm never going to see another one of his films again. And it's good because you can do that. You can see a film and go, "This is horrible," and then you hear about the next one, the next one, the next one. And you go, "Nup, nup, 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 nup," and that's good. I don't have to see him. So, last one. You do. I, well, <laughs> well, do I? Do I have to? Yeah, you do. I don't know. You do. I, I had actually. I, I mean, I I was blown away when I first saw Lars von Trier's uh, work, and that would have been with the element of crime, which was his first feature, came mm-hmm. out in nineteen eighty four. Uh, it debuted at Cannes. There were a lot of walkouts there, but there were also a lot of accolades, and that's yep. pretty much the story of his his yeah. career. Is that uh, people love him, people hate him. Yeah, right? I don't hate him. I just have no interest oh, no, in no, his no, work. But, well, the people who have to, the people oh, who yeah, are in a position yeah, to basically to engage with his work, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. there are those who love it, and there are those who hate it. Okay, yeah. and he's he's been a really significant figure in the history of art house cinema in uh, the last thirty five years. So. Uh, you know, it, it was he was one of the founders of the Dogma movement out of Denmark. Uh, his his film Dogville uh, with Nicole Kidman was an, an amazing piece of work that completely eschewed any kind of sets. It were it was on a bare studio floor with a few props and houses and so on marked out with tape. It was now you roll your eyes. I know. I wish people. I wish we had a camera in here so that I, so that our listeners can see. What what they're really dealing with in Andrew Young? I mean, I suspect I suspect they've got a, they've got some kind some, of inkling. Some idea yeah. of what I think about a film that has marks on the floor with the sit. Um, Jesus, probably he's he's probably most famous for uh, Breaking the Waves with Emily Watson. Yep. Uh, and Dancer in the Dark with Bjork. I went out Those with a girl once. You went out with Bjork? No, I went out with a girl oh. who went and saw that film. Was it Breaking Waves or Breaking the Waves? Breaking the Waves. And she said it was the best film she'd – and she said it in a very solemn right. voice. It was the best – like she'd had an experience. It was the best film she'd ever seen in her life. And I thought, oh, man, this isn't this isn't going to be – Yeah, look, not, I had, I had is, troubles. This relationship is on the way. I had troubles with that film because and, and of the, the way in which – he basically Emily Watson takes on, you know, she takes on. She became becomes a, a, a basically a prostitute. Do we need to talk about all this? Can well, we just get to the no, one? No, it's it's it's, it's 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 relevant because okay. there is a kind of uh, a critique of his films. All right, uh, that run runs through his body of work that where. 
the way he handles women is pretty dodgy. Right? Some say that about David Lynch too. Okay, but I don't. We'll but leave that for do. another day. Yeah. Let me, <laughs> I think you say it about a lot of directors, frankly. Actually, you could, couldn't you? You <laughs> could say so. that about a lot of directors. I think so. Yeah. But with with Von Trier's work, there's this kind of sense that women are this kind of they they carry the burdens of the world. They suffer mm-hmm. for us. For it's, men, they're almost like, well for all humanity, okay, I guess, sorry. in some way, um, either willingly or unwillingly. Mm-hmm. You know, they have this kind of. This sort of suffering uh, is, is, you know, born by them. And his latest film is a thing called The House of Jack Built. Okay. And it's, it's a serial killer movie. Mm-hmm. stars Matt Dillon. Mm-hmm. Uh, as with all of his films, I think all of his films, certainly most of his films, it's, no, not all, but most of his films, mm-hmm. it's set in America. Wow. A country to which Lars von Trier has never been. He has never left Denmark. Uh, he has, he says he's working this kind of <laughs> the camera is now detecting Andrew shaking his head furiously. He's like, never left Denmark. Are you serious? He's never left Denmark. I, look, I interviewed him. On it's Denmark. Have you been there? Yes. It's a really small, flat but place. It has like, great just across and the road. Really nice coffee. Just across the road, there's half a dozen countries you yeah. can just walk into. Uh, well, you can swim to some of them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's. When I spoke to him, he, he... Did you ask him about this? Did you ask him, what is wrong with you, man? Uh, You've not left Denmark. Uh, like, uh, what is the matter? And, and he said... He said, tell Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> he has only watched, he claimed, five movies since he left film school. No. It's <laughs> getting worse and worse. Oh. <laughs> <sighs> I only eat potato chips from an unopened packet that are unsalted and unflavoured and I only eat the second one. The thing about Lars von Trier is I'm not sure how much of any of what he says or does or produces we're meant to take at face value, right? Because What other values have you got there? I, th- I kind of think that the guy's living and working as a sort of continual piece of performance art. Gilbert and George style. Gilbert and George style. I think that... I think there's one giant piss take at some level. Okay. And it, it's – in The House of Jack Built is mm. basically uh, – It's a, 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 did you ever see the film Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer? No, I remember that film. I never saw it though. Right. Yeah. Right. So it kind of reminds me of that in, in that it takes you inside this really unpleasant place to be, which mm-hmm. is the mind of a serial killer, and you are, you are basically living their life for the duration of this film. Uh, some of the, he, We go through five – of his murders, and then we end up mm. at uh, and and I'm a little bit wary about saying this, but what the hell? Because most people are not going to actually see this film. I imagine. Oh, you're worried about and, spoiling it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and those who are going to see it, well, you know, it's a Lars film. You know, there's he spoiled it anyway. Like it's not like you're going to see any kind of a good film. He ends up in hell okay. in the final act, or it's sort of like a coda, really. Okay, yeah, and. And that's really unusual for, for a Lars von Trier film, the idea that there's actually moral, like, payback. Okay, all Because right. he, he sets his work in this godless, cruel, callous, you know, uh, disinterested universe. Well, in, in the world like with the one the we inhabit. We, yeah, we live exactly, in that world. That exactly. People aren't punished. People get away with it, man. That's exactly I right. can tell you that yeah. people get away with yeah. it and, and they will never be caught. And I've got to say, that's one of the things that makes his work so interesting, is mm. that he does basically stare that kind of existential, you know, 
chasm mm. in the face, and that's what he's grappling with the whole time. He swears he's not religious, but mm-hmm. his films are so much about the great kind of, you know, how do you, how do you exist in a godless universe? Uh, Dogville is basically Old Testament, New Testament, um, you know, face off uh, in the fi- okay. in the final act. But this film is kind of it gives us it gives us a, a kind of. So- a payoff. The Old Testament which is really facing off against the New Testament. Yeah, yeah. How does that work? With oh, which part? Of, it, I, I'm confused. James Kahn is who's, the father. Who is he? This is in Dogville. Yeah, no, who's he right. representing? The Old yeah, Testament? He's basically Old Testament God. Okay. Right? okay and Old Nicole, Testament God. And, oh, and okay, Nicole Kidman right. plays yeah. basically Christ. Okay. Which right. is not apparent until the yeah. very end of the film. And then suddenly you've got these, these two people sitting in the back of the car talking about whether or not vengeance should be, mm. you know, wrath should be delivered upon the people of Dogville, these people okay. who've allowed her to suffer and suffer and suffer. Again, okay. that theme yeah, of suffering, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the suffering female. So James Kahn. Yeah, playing basically Old Testament God. Right, okay. Right. And, he, and he, he swings her around. She goes, yeah, okay, let's kill him. <laughs> It's. I mean, he's a he's a, like, like, he's a bizarre, see, is, bizarre. You describe filmmaker. it yeah. as something that might be interesting, but I know that it would be covered in the carapace of uninteresting, non-acting, non-scripted words and a whole lot of kind of strange movements and 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 shapes that, I think that that's I think that's a misrepresentation of his work because I think he very much has okay. acting yeah, he very okay. much has scripting yeah uh, he has atrocious scenes in his films yeah. that, that are uh, there's a scene in in Ant- well there's two scenes in Antichrist one include uh, is well, they're both about genital... Is that genital- what this film's called, Antichrist? No, 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 this is no. a different film. Right. Antichrist uh, has Charlotte Gainsbourg and Willem Dafoe as a couple who are going through this terrible crisis mm. and there's witchcraft. In the, in, in the end credits, yeah. it's got researcher in misogyny, researcher in witchcraft. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, and again, you kind of go, is he having a lend or is that really what went on? Probably the latter, I think, in that case, but... You know, there there are scenes of gentle mutilation in that film that are just impossible to watch. Gentle or genital? Genital. Genital. Not, not gentle. Uh-huh. There, is, <laughs> there are no scenes of gentle mutilation. Okay, all right. Certainly not in the house of Jack Field. Anyway, okay. look, La- Lars, Lars, I think, is a fascinating filmmaker. Absolutely mad, challenging, uh, repulsive at times. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know. I, I, I still find there's a lot there in mm. his work that is... You know, it's compelling. I mean, whenever there's one of his films released, I'm I'm intrigued. Yeah. I'm intrigued. If, if Lars von Trier's films were a table, mm. you couldn't. It would have three legs, and they would be of different different heights. I was going to say you couldn't put anything on that no, no, table; it would not. collapse. It would be yeah. a useless yeah. table. But as it collapsed, it would break your arm. Yeah, yeah. So from that's probably just, sever it. For in me, fact. that's not a good film. Oh, okay. That's that's. Oh. Of course, you are only hearing my unlettered <laughs> opinion. Okay. I have no credentials. I have no credentials. I have no credentials in this area. But my that's my opinion. It's a table that you can't put anything on. So go and see this film, why don't you? Go on. <laughs> see what happens. But wear some protective covering on your arms just in case. <laughs> Oops. That was maybe a mistake. What was maybe a mistake? Me getting in this car with you. You might as well be a serial killer. Sorry, but... You do kind of look like one. When I think about all the things I've done in my life, 
without in any way resulting in punishment. Carl, speaking of suffering... Yes, Andrew? Uh, how do I put this? Uh, is this where you tell me that we're over? No, no, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I, I would just... Um, no, I won't, I won't describe to you how I will end our relationship. I'll give you a heads up. Uh, but I, don't worry. I've thought about it. Uh, so there's the Fair Work Commission and there's the Fair Work Ombudsman, yes. right? Now, the Fair Work Ombudsman investigates... It investigates on purpose and it also investigates on the basis of of tips and intelligence. Either it gathers itself or people uh, contact the Fair Work Ombudsman about an issue that they're having where they think that their workplace is unfair, either in a safety way or in a a pay way or in a superannuation way. And also the Fair Work Ombudsman, a bit like the ATO, will target an area. Recently they, they went Victoria Street in uh, Abbotsford in Melbourne, and they sent their people in to look at what was happening in the workplaces on that street. Most of them, as you know, are Vietnamese restaurants, but there's other kinds of workplaces too. And so, or they might they might do an industry. They might say hairdressers, where we want to look at hairdressers. We want to look at how because it's a cash economy a lot of the time. We want to look at, at if the levels of fairness in there. Now, um, just make sure they're not taking any shortcuts, right? Exactly. Yeah. Now, I, I mentioned the Fair Work Ombudsman because there's a I'm going to call it, just for our purposes, I'm going to call it a union called Hospo Voice. It's a union and it's not a union. Mm. It's a digital union that um, represents the cases for unfairness in the restaurant, cafe, bar, pub scene in Melbourne. And people get to, people can join for $10. They're not represented in like a negotiating or a bargaining way like a, a union normally does. But they are invited to be part of a, a sense of solidarity where petitions are written and people are asked to sign them regarding various restaurants in terms of fairness of pay. Um, you've probably heard a lot of the stories, uh, people ringing yep. up on the radio saying, my workplace owes me $10,000, they've offered me $2,000 and so on. And it's an interesting thing for me because I don't go out to dinner very much and the only two restaurants I've been to in the last however many months, I looked up and there's nothing about them on Hospo Voice because Hospo, um, uh, you can look up the restaurants that you go to and see what people say. Yep. And some of them have very eloquent uh, descriptions of the type of safety, pay, other various issues. Some of them are just, oh, this place is great. These people are tops. I love working here, which is not necessarily a balanced way to to make decisions about whether a place is is fair or not because it's it's anonymous and all it's it like may have been written by the restaurant manager maybe written by the restaurant manager yeah. exactly or maybe written by a disgruntled employee with yeah. an axe to grind there's, there's not it's it's good that it exists and it's a great way for for people to get so it's a basically sense. it's it's like you know trip advisor for you know restaurants basically it or. is it is it is um and i just i just want to read out a couple of numbers that i gleaned from the fair work ombudsman mm-hmm. that i found uh, worth mentioning, um, in 2017-18, 46% of small businesses it ordered were non-compliant, 63% of disputes involved small business, 39% were about hourly rate, 39% hourly rate underpayments. 39 right? or 39%? 39% right. were uh, of hourly rate. Now, of the 18 audits resulted in about $2.5 million dollars of money being brought back yeah. to be paid to the to the workers. Hospitality is the most reported on industry of 15,000 anonymous reports up to last year. 
37% were hospitality, and that's a 44% increase on the previous financial year. And a lot of their reports they're getting in languages other than English as well. And it's a good it's a good thing that we have this Fair Work Ombudsman. It's different from some of the other ombudsmans where you get in a, a queue that's about half a million people long and you, you know, like the telecommunications ombudsman. But it's interesting because you I, – I work not in hospitality but adjacent to hospitality. You know, I play – uh, in clubs and bars that often are mentioned very unfavorably in the Hospo Voice uh, website. And I don't just mean, oh, these people, I mean, in some of those very eloquent descriptions yeah. of cases and, you know, chapter and verse. And it's, an, it, it's, it's, a, it's a great, it's a very interesting step that, that workers have taken to try and find a way to, the, the, the people who own their restaurants are often seen in the society pages buying their third speedboat and it must be, give you such a sense of gall when you're working these long hours, you're being clocked out unbeknownst to you and working hours that don't appear on any proper timesheet. I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone in this. I know of cases where people haven't had their super paid, they didn't get their super paid until the ATO found out about them and forced them to pay all the money that they owed to the tax department and then they get their, then they get their super. And it's, it's something that I feel is, is, is continually being talked about. We continually hear about a new place that's been investigated and we hear new people constantly ringing up and it's, it's like this open wound in, 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 on the body of this, this, this great, you know, lovable, livable Melbourne. You know, come to our bars, come to our restaurants. But meanwhile, everybody that is working there is being exploited. It's, um, it's, it's, it's an interesting and challenging thing to deal with because... Um, you know, there's a lot been a lot of reporting about the fact that chefs, for instance, are working paid, you know, nominally uh, 38 hour a week. They uh, they will uh, agree to a contract that gives them uh, a a slightly inflated wage. Um, mm-hmm. I think I, I don't I don't know exactly what the percentage is, but yeah. a percentage above the award. Yeah. Um. Uh, in exchange for working more hours. Yep. Um. And the baseline condition there, a baseline understanding, is that uh, once the hours are taken into account, they can't be worse off than they would have been under the award. Uh, now that, that it's it's well known, it's been known for a long, long, long time, long before any of these reports surfaced, that chefs regularly work sort of sixty plus hours a week. Mm. You know, probably sixty to eighty hours a week is not uncommon. Mm. Yeah, it uh, has been well known, and they don't get paid particularly well. No. I mean, you know, there's a lot of focus on you know the celebrity chefs and their lavish lifestyles, but they're, but, they're yeah, they're like the very, very tip of the tip of the iceberg. Mm. You know, the, mm. the the majority of people in the in the industry are. But, you know, if they're making fifty to sixty grand a year, that's probably about ballpark for a, for a full time chef. You know, in which in is a, an eighty hour job, which is that's twice right. as much as what a fifty or sixty grand a year person would be working. That's right. So it's like it's it's a actually really a pretty low paid profession, mm. and uh, so that's that's kind of like in in on the grounds of fairness, mm. absolutely. They should be. They should be getting paid better than they are getting paid. Not just the chefs, of course, but no, no, the no, 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 no. But the, just, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, just taking one sliver of it. Mm. If you do that, it fundamentally changes the dynamics of the industry and the and the cost base mm. of the industry, and you and then it makes the viability of that industry quite questionable. I would have thought if everybody is getting paid. Say a minimum of twenty five to thirty dollars per hour for every hour they work, or whatever the award is. Yeah, whatever, well, whatever it's the in, award that is. Yeah, it's in that ballpark. It's in that ballpark. Then uh, suddenly 
your your eighty hour a week chef is on two and a half grand a week, one hundred and one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year instead of the fifty to sixty. Mm. So what do they do? Do they charge twice what they were charging for the meals? Do they employ half as many staff? They go out of business. I it's, mean, it, it's it's a, it's, a, it's it's always the, the and, and the, I'm not saying I'm no, not no, saying, saying that they, that they should, should not no, be underpaying no, no. them by any means. But it's a capital, um, it's it's a capital question. It's a labour question, and and it comes back to how how much do you not you how much does one condone people being exploited? It's it's not just it's it's about our clothes. Mm. You know, how much are be people being paid to make our underpants? Yeah, you know yeah, how important is it to to buy whatever they are? I don't know how much they cost, but you know, like people need to start taking responsibility. And and you say so. Okay, I'm not going to go every uh, time you get into a taxi or an Uber. Exactly. I mean, you think if you actually do the economics and work out what it, what is it really yeah. likely that the person driving that vehicle is earning from from that exchange or, you know, they're sitting at an airport for two hours waiting for, oh, waiting for oh, a lift, yeah, yeah. four hours yeah, sometimes. You I know. know. It's like there are a lot of industries. I mean, we don't yet have the visibility of mm. the underclass that, say, America has. Yeah. But I think we're pretty we're close on, to it structurally. And what I was going to say is do you say, oh, I'm an ethical consumer, so I'm not going to – not that I eat a lot in restaurants, but say, say something happened in my life and I was able to eat in a restaurant once a week – do I not eat in those restaurants where they exploit people? Well, that's good. Okay, so I'm eating in the restaurants to get the big thumbs up where people are paid award and they're well-treated, happy. So that's good, right? But maybe it's not good because maybe those restaurants, uh, they close down. Yeah, but that's good. But now those people are out of work. That's not good. But then they're out of work in a job where they're exactly. being exploited, not being paid. Yeah, but they've still got to eat. Like It's a very tricky conundrum. But I think the fact that the ombudsman is going in and, and continually auditing and punishing and fining and 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 doing something to to uh, help bring a, a, a fairer employment world, I think that's a really good thing. I, I think maybe people need to start thinking about paying more for things and just having less of them. Mm. You know, that, that in fact, that's something I've I've been thinking for for a very long time. Is that you you don't get to have all this stuff you don't get to pay so little for all this stuff you have to actually pay for it and then think about whether you need it or not and not have as much you know melbourne's become this uh, city of gourmands and people seem to think that eating out three times a day is completely uh, viable and acceptable and um, demand levels of attention and service that are completely disproportionate to how much they're spending and maybe we need to look at things a little bit differently than that you know and pay more for what we what we eat or drink or do, and that goes to the person who's providing it to you. Maybe people don't look at um, restaurant being a restaurateur or owning a club or as as some kind of license to print money. You know, maybe employees need to go back to the Quakers. So a bit of social responsibility on the go part back of employers. To the Quakers. Is that what yeah, you're yeah, 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 yeah. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you don't know about the Quakers. You know about the uh, fries, the Cadburys. Uh, you, you should very read, nice furniture. You should read a book. Oh, by, the Shakers. Read a book by Deborah Cadbury uh, on called The Chocolate Wars. There you go. I've snuck in a book there, Carl. Now we haven't talked about Married at First Sight, but we're out of time, so we're going to have to leave that until the next episode. Of How I do it? I'd ghost you. Oh, really? I would. Would you? Yeah, I'd uh, ghost that you. That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> you practically ghost me anyway. 
<laughs> you were so close to ghosting just in our weekly exchanges. <laughs> anyway, that's, thanks for listening. That's yes, it thank from you. this episode of The Clappers. It's been a good one, hasn't it? Join us next time. Almost the best one. <laughs> <laughs>